So what does it take to make your first million, to scale a business, or to get your first high street listing? I'm Oliver Bruce, founder and entrepreneur myself, and I ask industry leaders and entrepreneurs on my award-winning podcast, Success is in the Mind, exactly that. From high-growth startups to scale-ups and businesses about to exit, I am joined weekly by the founders of businesses like Octopus Energy, Genies, Thursday Dating, Habito, Cano Water and Hera, as well as many more. From sportswear to tech, energy to consumables, hear it here firsthand from those entrepreneurs innovating and disrupting. Join me every Wednesday from 8am. We needed a mortgage broker because we didn't know anything about mortgage broking. So I hired a, a mortgage broker who I found on LinkedIn and his, uh, his bio was 21st century mortgage broker. And I was like, well, that's the guy. Perfect. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. What does success look like to Daniel? I think I want to run the mortgage industry. I, I thought you were going to say run the country then. I wasn't sure where it was going. <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> Thank you so much to our headline sponsors for the year, Capsule Cover. Capsule Cover, a specialist insurance partner to growth businesses, supports some of the UK's most innovative and ambitious companies. Sponsoring each and every one of our podcasts, we're on a journey with Capsule, and so should you be. If you're a scale-up or an ambitious, high-growth business, check out how Capsule Cover can help you with bespoke insurance solutions. Inquire via CapsuleCover.com and quote Success22. On today's episode of Successes in the Mind, we've school dropout turned entrepreneur Daniel Haggerty, founder of online mortgage broker Habita, who are looking to disrupt the mortgage market by streamlining the process. Having dropped out of school age 16 to follow his passion and work in music, it wasn't long until Daniel was signed to the same label as Boy George. Earning £100 a week, Daniel would tour the UK with his punk band Serum. Ending up in LA writing songs for Robbie Williams, Sugar Babes and Pink, Daniel's music career was starting to take off. That was until he decided to leave it all behind. As an original team member of the payday lender Wonga, Daniel spent nearly 10 years in the world of startup before spotting a gap in the market for the business he now runs, which has raised over 80 million quid in funding. I asked Daniel if dropping out of school might have been the best decision he ever made. How do you set up a business with no experience and generate tens of millions of pounds in funding? And what does the future of mortgage broking look like? Ladies and gentlemen, founder and CEO of Habito, Daniel Haggerty. So Daniel, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I mean, looking back at your childhood, you know, you left school at 16, which was an interesting decision. I bet your parents didn't necessarily think that was the best thing to do back then. You said, and I quote, I guess I was just a bit of a rebel. When researching this, it said online that you went to go and work in a guitar shop, but that wasn't strictly true, was it? I actually left school uh, because I was at a band. I was in a very, a sort of a tiny, sort of quite terrible uh, little punk band. Um, and we got a tiny record deal. And so there was the opportunity to you know, tore the bright lights of uh, Tunbridge Wells and Leeds. And so the idea of uh, continuing on in education seemed insane. Also, I, I was I was an abominable student, like a really, really terrible. Um, I, re- I remember one of my early school reports said that I had a lack of scholastic integrity. <laughs> I still don't quite. What is scholastic integrity? I, th- I think essentially that I could, I, would, I could wing it, but I actually didn't really know anything. <laughs> <laughs> which may be a pattern that has, uh, has, has reappeared in later life. But no, I, I, didn't, I didn't get on well at school. I didn't enjoy it very much. Um, I was a bit of a nocturnal creature, so I just found all the getting up pretty awful. Um, and once, yeah, there was the opportunity to not do it and do something, I guess, a bit more creative, a bit more practical and immediate, like being a band, um, that, that seemed like a better idea. Because the band did make you a bit of money. You were making 100 quid a week. You had signed to the same label as Boy George. I mean, that is big bucks for a 16-year-old back then. What did you do with all that cash? Well, I probably shouldn't say. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't It wasn't nutritional. <laughs> um, no, it was... Um, no, I felt, I felt like a millionaire. I, felt, I also felt like a genius. Like all, all my friends were like still like plugging away at sixth form, and I was like on the road with 100 quid in my pocket. Um, so no, it was, um, it was really exciting, but, and, and the thing that was kind of cool about it was that I was suddenly immersed in a world of adults, um, as a child. So I, I don't know, like a lot of the, the friends I made and experiences I had then I felt like were sort of formative for me and, and, and sort of allowed me to maybe jump, jump a few levels, if you like, in terms of my comprehension of how the world worked. And um, so I, I really loved it, but it was also intimidating. And we were also like imbeciles and made a total hash of it and weren't very good musically either. So it was, uh, <laughs> it could have gone, it could have gone a, a number of ways. Uh, and I'm, unfortunately, it worked out all right. <laughs> I mean, what did your parents say when you literally said, mum, dad, I'm uh, quitting school? They weren't thrilled. So I, I was actually uh, at that point living with my grandparents um, and they were, I think they were sort of worried. 
I think they were concerned, but also like pretty cognizant of the fact that like I, I wasn't a brilliant listener. Like I was, a, I, was, it was I was, I was quite a sort of quiet kid, but I was very willful. Like I was going to do what I was going to do. And I think they sort of recognized there wasn't much um, value in trying to, trying to push me off that, that road. And I guess maybe <laughs> that hasn't changed that much. <laughs> did you, I mean, did you have any, any, I suppose, neurological uh, disadvantages or diversity in that sense, dyslexia, dyspraxia, or were you just generally not interested at all in establishment? I don't know. So nothing diagnosed. I really just... I really just, to be blunt, I just couldn't get my shit together. Like at the most basic <laughs> level, I couldn't get the stuff in the bag. I couldn't like have the right textbook for the right lesson. I just, I was, I had very bad insomnia. So I would, I would always be up till four in the morning reading sci-fi like a loser. <laughs> <laughs> and then just trying to like get to school and be prepared for it. And I would often, I, I would often fall asleep in class. Um, and I remember my, my, my best friend, actually it was my birthday last week and he was, he did a little speech and he said that, they would laugh. They would. I'd be snoring away on my desk, and the teacher would just be like, "Just leave him. Just leave him. It's easier this way. <laughs> he can add nothing to this conversation. Exactly. <laughs> just let them lie." It, I mean, but you did do quite well. I mean, irrespective of the hundred quid and the boy George label, you ended up in in L.A. writing songs for the for the you know big time bands of the time, like S Club Seven, Sugar Babes, Roy Williams. I mean, that's pretty cool, right? I mean, I, just again to be clear, I was I was very much on the margins of. The, all these successful successful artists' careers, but no, I did I, for for a good, really like eight or nine years actually. Like I carved out a career as a working musician, um, sometimes touring, sometimes in my own bands uh, that were all spectacularly unsuccessful, and um, sometimes writing for other for other artists. And and I, I did, I, I loved it, and, and I, I'm not sure there's more fun you can be having when you're 21 than living in LA, running around doing silly stuff. But um, but it is. I mean, it's it's a tough career in many ways, right? Like you're you're very much paycheck to paycheck. Um, I, I would look at some of my sort of older compatriots, you know, particularly those with kids, and we'd be off on tour for nine months, and you'd see them saying goodbye to the kids at the airport, and you're like, oh, like that is that's tough. And and so no, although I I really really loved it, I think there was a point where I was like, this, like I don't know if I want to be. Essentially, the only way that I could find to be financially secure was to kind of get involved in music that I didn't really like. And I was like, would I, do you know what I mean? Would I rather like be playing terrible pop music and, or would I rather just get a job where I actually could be a bit more sort of creatively engaged? Because <laughs> you, I mean, your band at the time was called Serum when you were when you were younger, but you essentially started writing for, as I said, the likes of Sugar Babes and, and, and people like that who are pop, you were punk. You know, was it kind of through gritted teeth that you wrote these lyrics and gave it to them on a piece of paper? I was so broke, man. Like I was so <laughs> thrilled to to get a paycheck from anybody at that point. <laughs> and, so, and I grew up in like in a very sort of ordinary sort of sort of I guess middle class environment. But like there was you know there was always there was no sort of comfortable safety net, and there was a real consciousness that I could just see those credit card bills racking up and. It's just it's like it's difficult to, to earn a living. And I was, yeah, I was in all these terrible, no, no, they weren't terrible. I was in these these good bands, but they were very, um, quite challenging listening, you know, <laughs> nine minute instrumental epics, which uh, uh, surprisingly didn't ever bother the, the radio stations. <laughs> quite, uh, quite a niche, I suppose, in that sense. And what did your parents do then as a, as a kind of, what, how did they make their money? How did you have a comfortable upbringing? What's their line of business? So my dad was an accountant. I worked in hotels, um, and uh, my mum didn't uh, didn't work principally. So we, yeah, I guess we, again, to be to be honest, we it was always a house that was right on the edge financially. Like I remember money just being like one of the sort of that that sort of tension around money and what we had and what we didn't have being kind of a constant narrative. And actually, uh, I also lived with my grandparents. Um, we all, we lived together, and they were, you know, they'd come over from Austria and Czechoslovakia uh, in the Second World War, so they were Jewish, and so there was a there was a little bit of a sort of refugee mentality in my house where there was a kind of like things can be taken away from us. We're not like, there's no sort of surplus. There's no, we only have what we have. Um, and I think that, I think that did really stay with me. And, and I think that's one of the things I actually found challenging as a musician and even as, you know, in the early stages of, of Habito was this kind of always having to have my hand out, you know, always like asking for something from someone. Whereas what I think when you grow up in that kind of environment, what you really want is financial security and certainty of your, you know, control of your own life. Really. And, that, and that's kind of ironic, really, isn't it, Daniel, in terms of where you went from and to and before, obviously, Habito, which, which you run now, because you were, you know, an early team member in Wonga, which was the payday lender. That and was. that was something that you 
did. You built the website. You kind of did the UX there. But you were very early stages when joining that business. I was. I mean, it was bizarre. I still can't believe they gave me a job. Um, I, I literally <laughs> rolled out of yeah, like ten years of being a musician. Um, I had I just moved back to the UK. I, I just split up with my girlfriend. I was very sad. I had no idea what was next. Um, Can you write a song about that, like James Blunt? Something upsetting. <laughs> it was a great album. Never got made, sadly, yeah. <laughs> due to, due to that, all that payday lending. Damn. Um, <laughs> but um, but no, I, I, I had a really close friend who was a uh, corporate lawyer uh, during the day and an opera singer at night. So I knew her from music. And I was like, listen, I've got no qualifications and no discernible skills, but do you know anyone who might give me a job? And she introduced me to the, the founder of Wonga, a guy called Errol Damlin. Um, and I was, you know, I don't really know what the business was, who he was, but was kind of just thrilled to not have to go back on the road for a few months and see if I could find my feet. Um, and I did, I really, I completely fell in love with it. Like it turned out that I was a tremendous geek. Um, and when they let me loose on like the credit model and the website and everything else, I just, um, yeah, I, I couldn't have been more excited. I was suddenly just surrounded by, like I'd always been surrounded by impressive people, but just a completely different universe, you know, of like incredibly focused, driven kind of uh, humans. Um, and I, yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. In terms of how you learned how to build a website or work on a website or, you know, even you know, with the credit aspect that you alluded to, where did you put that experience up? Because you didn't have any. Again, yeah, like massive geek. Uh, much, you know, it, my, I was living a lie trying to pretend that I was a cool musician. <laughs> Catch me if you can, right? Is that what it was? Um, no, but he, the thing he gave me after six weeks, uh, the, C, the CEO asked me if I could buy some Amazon, some books on Amazon. And he said, you can buy, he gave me the corporate credit card and he said, like, you can buy as many books as you like. And I just, again, like this was completely foreign to me, the idea of that kind of plenty. And so I did, I bought my books on logistic regression and UX design and, you know, you know, web analytics. And I just, I was like a sponge. I just, uh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe that someone was just letting me loose out there on the, you know, in the real world doing real things. <laughs> Still with insomnia, reading them until four in the morning, yeah, I assume. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but you were there for quite a while and, and then you jumped ship and became MD of another business, which really only lasted in for a year before obviously going into, into where you are now. But being surrounded by all these highly successful and inspirational people from maybe not the sugar babes, but maybe the pop stars that you were surrounded by through to, you know, CEOs of, of essentially a very big business, which was Wonga. Did that drive you to sort of do something different and to make a difference in the world? Yeah, it, it sounds basic, but I guess I got to watch one. Endless and Wonga is such a complex story and like lots of, lots wrong with Wonga. But what, it, but what it was, was, you know, one thing it definitely was, was successful uh, for a number of years. And I, I guess I just got to see it like the very closest level. Um, how you can build something huge in the world from absolutely nothing, uh, and I guess I got to see the step by step and what it you know what it took in terms of commitment and drive, uh, intellectual capacity, whatever you might, whatever else you might think of, um, and so yeah, I think I think kind of coming through that whole experience and uh, and the, so the second half it was really quite unpleasant and we we lost our way on a number of fronts, but it, it I really left me with a drive that. I wanted to build something of my own, um, something where I could control the culture. Um, I could make sure that we were sort of really un unambiguously aligned with our customers. Um, and yeah, you, you kind of get this like crazy thought in your head that like you might be able to in your little minute world, sorry, minute way, uh, you know, change the world a little bit. And in terms of where you think it went so badly wrong for Wonga, where do you think they went off the rails? It just... It was an unbelievably successful company. So we went from, you know, four or five of us to a thousand of us in four years. Um, and it, it was a business business that just could not really come to terms with its own scale. So it was, a, you know, suddenly you're in nine countries with three product lines and, um, and it just, yeah. And then when you, that, that sort of meteoric growth comes with its own momentum and, and expectations from the outside world. And I think, yeah, I think so along the line, we, we, we lost sight of the customer. Um, maybe we lost sight a little bit of like, the part that we were playing in the world more broadly. Um, and I, I think became a little bit, we were under siege from quite early on because, you know, we were seen as usurious and so on. And I think we let that siege mentality kind of sort of deaden us a little bit. You know, I, th I think we felt like we were at war. Um, and yeah, we ended up making a bunch of, I think, decisions that weren't great that resulted in a bunch of outcomes for customers that weren't great. Um, and yeah, I was, yeah, I like, I learned an extraordinary amount going through it. You left, obviously, four years before it, it went belly up, but you joined a company called Everline. Now, what did Everline do? Because you were the MD for them. So Everline actually part, was part of Wonka. 
Um, so was it really? Yeah, okay. so we moved into small business lending um, and also actually into a number of international businesses. So I basically, I so my last couple of years there, I was running everything that wasn't the sort of the, the core UK business. So I was working on that international stuff, which was partially because I, I wanted to be somewhere I felt a, bit, a little more comfortable. Um, so yeah, so that was really good. But again, like it was just a be- it was a behemoth. It was really big. It was really disorganized. And again, I couldn't really ultimately influence the culture. Um, and I think that of, of all things, uh, when, when it sort of came to what to do next, was what was really driving me to found my own business. Because you, you founded the business, you know, not long after you became MD within that, I suppose, uh, affiliation of Wonga. Now, in terms of in terms of founding that business, you found a niche, a really good niche in the market that actually nobody else at the time had seen. And there are other people out there now, but maybe not people that have done it quite as well as you have, because you've raised millions of pounds to get this off the ground. How did you do that? So the honest truth is, I think when you're in this sort of you know, I was open to it. So I was, I was out there, you know, I knew I wanted to found my own business. I knew I wanted to build something. Um, and I guess you're looking, you're looking around, you're hoping to trip over some like sort of, you know, tear in the fabric of everyday life. Um, and for me, that was buying my own home. So I'd, I'd finally saved up and this must be about seven years ago and was just, just trying to buy my first house. And I just had this completely catastrophic experience, like sort of hilariously so, where I won't drag you through the whole thing, but essentially the application went into the mortgage broker, sent it off to the lender, and they included me, my partner at the time, and my partner again. So it was declined on the grounds that I was like a bigamist or a polygamist or something. <laughs> what, really? So I thought you had two partners, like a Mormon. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> but then, then the mortgage broker, realizing their mistake, sort of after it got declined, then resubmitted it, but this time accidentally took me off the application. So just put my partner and my partner. Right. So that got declined. So anyway, this whole thing went on for like a month. Um, we nearly lost the house. The sellers completely lost faith in our ability to, to buy the home. And it was interesting. It was a... I realized I absolutely had no comprehension of the home buying process or mortgages or anything around it. But the thing that really struck me was how totally disempowered I felt and how like a, a emotional the experience was. Um, and I think that that was where it sort of clicked in my head. I was like, there's, there is absolutely no way that it, it needs to be this difficult. Like there, there must be a way, whether it's through, you know, putting the customer back at the center, whether it's through levering technology in a smart way. I didn't know at that point, but I, I had a real fire in my belly to, to figure it out. Because did you always want to go into business? I mean, when you go into music, it's kind of like running your own freelance business, I suppose. But you went into a, you know quite a big business, raising, as I said, tens of millions of quid to get it off the ground. It's a bit of a change from giving away money to having to raise it for yourself. <laughs> I've got to say, like, and it sounds like horribly pretentious, but like, I'm not like, I'm not that infatuated by commerce. I've got to be totally honest. Like, it's not like. The sort of seeing the revenue number go up and to the right isn't isn't the thing that gets me out of bed. I think the and it's, it's not because I'm a philanthropist or anything like that. That the, just the thing that gets me really excited is like solving real tangible problems that I can get in my head around and I can see their impact in the world. Um, and I think the thing I didn't know when I found it, but I really discovered as I went along, was that the more people that I was doing that with the more the satisfaction I got from it multiplied. So as the team got bigger and I was surrounded by, again, more and more extraordinary people, um, I got, yeah, like I just, like I, I got more and more from it and it made me want to go and raise more capital and make it larger and see like quite how much impact we could potentially have in the world. In terms of, in terms of scaling it then from day one through to let's just say the first year or so, what did that look like in terms of, in terms of bootstrapping, putting in, you know, series, I just pre-seed and then series A, etc. Did you have to pump your own cash in or did you go straight out to the market and ask for some money? No, I wouldn't ask for some money. <laughs> <laughs> Why use your own when you can use somebody else's? Well, I, I guess my, my investment was not taking a salary for a year, I guess. Um, so, so yeah, I, um, I went out and raised, like I forget what it was now, a couple hundred thousand dollars, I think, um, from two people I'd worked with previously who'd kind of said, listen, we, we back you. If you're going to go and build something, like we'd love to be the first money. So I was, I was very fortunate in that. And then, yeah, it was it was several months of me sort of sitting around in my flat in my pants, uh, like, thinking really hard and worrying that I hadn't done anything yet. You could be doing that right now, Daniel. We would have no idea based on the visual. I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> Good job there's not a mirror behind you. Um, exactly. Um, but no, and then sort of as it went along, um, I managed to sort of attract uh, the first engineer. Um, and then actually uh, we, we, we needed a mortgage broker because we didn't know anything about mortgage broking. So I hired a, a mortgage broker who I found on LinkedIn and his, uh, his bio was 21st century mortgage broker. And I was like, well, that's the guy. <laughs> so, <Perfect. laughs> so, so we took him. 
And essentially, the, the three of us sat in my kitchen. In your pants. Yeah, well, no, we were at this, at this point, we were all betrousered. Bet- uh, <laughs> <laughs> Donning um, the trowel, yeah. Exactly. Um, and we spent six months, I guess, sort of kind of figuring each other out because we're, you know, we're sort of very, particularly like our, the mortgage broker and the engineer are like completely alien to each other and their, their worldviews and sort of trying to fathom how the market functioned, what the, the, the sort of the lived experience of the customer was and what a, a better version of it might look like. And um, it was, I've got to be frank, I really enjoyed that part, but I found that first year really tough. Um, and I think, I, you know, I really, I really felt like a charlatan. It sounds silly, but you're like, it's, you're running around and you're telling everyone, like I'm the CEO, I'm the made up CEO of this made up business and we're going to disrupt the mortgage industry worth billions and you need to give me millions. And I just, it made me feel pretty uncomfortable <laughs> like because it was, it was clearly fanciful. Um, and thought, you know, obviously in hindsight, it, it worked out okay, but that, that trying to like force something new into existence, it's actually a really like, it's really like really, really quite uncomfortable. And I, so when I look back and I sort of, you know, everybody, um, idealizes standing at the whiteboard and sketching out the first product map but i think i think the truth is is that i was yeah like i was under quite a lot of pressure i was quite anxious about the fact i didn't have any income and it was yeah it was it was kind of unpleasant i can imagine now in terms of when you kind of came up with the idea and then you hired the 21st century uh, mortgage broker from linkedin which i think is brilliant <laughs> you know you didn't did you have an mvp at the time did you have anything to get the cash off your mates or was it just your head your idea and your personality no i think it was mostly just I think they'd seen me, they'd seen me work before, and I think they. I'm one of them. The, the comment was like, you know, "The good thing about Dan is, you know, he'll run through a wall to get it done." And I think that was their feeling. Was like, if I'd by the time I'd stuck my name on it, like I was, I'd be too proud to let it fail, <laughs> whatever it might, whatever it might be. And so yeah, and that's really fortunate. And then I think now I do a tiny bit of angel investing. Like I see quite how advantaged I was in being able to kind of skip that first credibility credibility building step. Um, but no, and we spent that first year, yeah, we, we built that MVP and that MVP effectively allowed us to go and raise our first sort of institutional seed round. Um, and because it's a regulated business, there's, there's quite a few hoops you've got to jump through in that first year. You can't just put out your MVP. Um, and yeah, and then so it was about, it was, yeah, it was probably about 16 months from me getting started uh, through to us uh, actually operationally launching the business. And, and then you obviously went through more funds after that. Now, in terms of what those tranches and what those funds actually look like, how did you know what the right point in the history of the business was to go and raise a couple of million quid extra or whatever that might have been? So to be honest, all of our rounds until the more recent ones were, were opportunistic. Um, so we were we were approached or had a relationship with through one of the early investors or, or maybe someone in my network um, who was like, listen, you know, I can see you've still got some runway left, but I imagine you'll be out in six months. Would you like the money now? Um, and because I am fundamentally lazy <laughs> <laughs> and the idea and, and, and actually to the earlier point and because i don't really like wandering around with my hand out trying to convince people to give me cash um like the, the terms are always very reasonable um and so i was always happy to take the capital from you know people who were, who were leaning in and, and ready to to partner with us and based on what they did to you in terms of those angels back in the day with habito do you very much do the same with people you're investing in or is that something that you're looking for them to come and ask you for the cash I'm still I'm still quite early on it, and the thing that I've really realised is that I I love doing that pre-seed round. Like I like being the first money in when it's just a, a guy or a girl or a couple of guys and girls, um, and essentially getting to relive the glory days of being at the whiteboard with them. And I'm not really adding any value, but just in the in sort of by giving them a mirror to look in um, and sort of a, allowing them to have you know sort of experience the different contexts for their thoughts. Um, I I get a huge amount from it. I get an incredible amount of intellectual stimulation and I hope that it is of some use um, to them. So no, so I I really I'm always on the lookout like for these, you know, for people who sort of haven't been sucked into the vortex of, you know, the the angel networks and the VCs and are kind of still like in that in that raw form, I think I think that's where I can add the most value. And in terms, I suppose, of how the business then scaled over time, because you guys wrote a lot of mortgages in quite a short space of time, from two hundred and what is it, forty-five mortgages in in twenty sixteen, three hundred and sixty-one million pounds worth in twenty seventeen, a billion in twenty eighteen, two billion twenty nineteen, four billion twenty twenty, give or take, huge numbers. You know, how was how were you guys making money off that? Were you just creaming off the top? What was the kind of process in terms of monetization? So it's really simple. So all mortgage brokers get paid about a third of a percent of the value of a mortgage uh, every time that they broke it 
so essentially, so very, very simple for us. We, we then went on to add a bunch of other products. We have a thing called Habito Plus, where we help with the, with the whole home buying process, uh, as well as now being a, a mortgage lender in our own right. So in, in, we have slightly different revenue models there. But but the core was, was very simple. Like customers uh, find the process of getting a mortgage utterly hellish, which... I understand. Um, and so we wanted to make it easier, give them great quality advice and sort of take away as much of that pain and friction as we possibly could. Um, and so really, once we'd, I guess, cracked the, the fundamental user experience, we just then had to deal with the with all of the usual problems of scale. <clears throat> and of course, as soon as anything's working at one set level of scale, it's on fire at the next. Um, and so, you know, you spend a few years sort of turning around in circles, trying to put those fires out sequentially. <laughs> um, and before you know it, you know, it's five years later and you're, you know, you're writing percent of all the mortgages in the UK. So in terms of the way you've diversified now into the world of actually becoming a, a company that gives mortgages to individuals, that must take a huge amount of capital. Is that because you guys have now got enough liquid in the bank or you've got access to overdrafts and loans from banks to be able to, to do that? No, so you have to go out and raise specific debt capital for mortgage lending. So we've now raised about £1.5 billion in debt um, specifically Christ. for that. And that is tricky uh, because that's a lot of cash to be entrusted with, to be frank. And especially when you're a four or five year old business who's never lent before. And so this is a sort of, um, so you A, need to find some very credible people, much more credible than me, uh, to, uh, to get everybody comfortable. Um, and you need to build a real platform. And it's, it's actually deeply unnatural um, in a startup where you want to fast iterate and, you know, build on the fly. Whereas if you want that billion pounds, like the whole thing needs to be built and you need to be able to demonstrate that it's robust and that the numbers all add up before you can write your first mortgage. So it actually was, was quite a mountain for us to climb. But we just, we really felt like as a broker, we could only solve half the problem. Like we were, you know, if you were being unkind or unlucky, you would, uh, you know, the customer could end up accelerated to the same traffic jam at the bank, um, you know. And so we really wanted to take responsibility for the entire process and see if we could, you know, in a more fundamental way, transform the experience of buying a home. You guys have basically automated it as well, haven't you? So you don't actually need to have that many people, I suppose, writing or broking this, uh, these deals because it's all very much done through software and AI? Well, it's interesting. So what we found, so as technologists, obviously, you know, we, we can we can be a bit fundamentalist about these things. We were like, we're going to automate it away. Humans are bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out in some ways we were right. In other ways, we were completely wrong. So there is a lot of ridiculous manual work that humans end up doing in the mortgage process that is much better suited for machines. So all the arithmetic, all the figuring out which lender, you know, has the right attributes and all that much better done algorithmically. But actually, like this is a huge an emotional purchase, um, and most people don't feel comfortable taking a two hundred thousand pound loan uh, alone on the internet. We found that. So actually, what what sort of emerged was that where we where we could really put our people to to work in the best way was by building those empathetic connections and being there at sort of the points of maximum emotional magnitude to, to provide comfort and support, and then let the machine do all the boring stuff in the background. So people are an important part of it, but clearly compared to a traditional lender, yeah, there are far fewer people involved in the process of making a mortgage. So just talk me through the process then. I go, I go to the website, I want a mortgage for a quarter million quiz. How do I, how do, I do that? How do I get the mortgage? So firstly, you tell us some things. Um, so, the, so the basics about who you are, um, and then we give you a general sense of what you might be able to afford. Um, ordinarily then, uh, people sort of disappear for a little bit onto Rightmove or Zoopla and go and find that house. And once they have, they come back and tell us about the house. And then if you like, the application is kind of complete. Um, we then, all the way through, you'll have your own uh, assigned mortgage expert. Um, he'll be sort of holding your hand and walking through all the different steps. Um, and then as soon as you're ready to go, um, we find the cheapest mortgage in the market uh, that's appropriate for you. And, and in some cases, one of our own mortgages. Uh, we send you off, uh, we send your application off, uh, it comes back processed and off you go. Um, and it normally, on average, it takes about half as long with us as it would with a, a traditional broker uh, from, from our research. And it's a damn sight cheaper for the individual as well, right? Yeah, it's free, which is really great. There you um, go. So, so <laughs> we're not the only free broker, I should say, but um, but the majority of the traditional brokers will, but they both get that, that uh, revenue from the bank, but will also charge you on average £500 uh, on top of that, which is a bit steep. In terms of how it looks, do you guys do it commercially as well? In terms of, you know, would you do it for commercial property as well as buy to let, or is it simply people's houses? No, so we are, we are, very much a consumer business. 
Um, and so, and, it, and to, although we, we do do air and sort of we deal across the whole spectrum, we find like absolutely our, our sort of core customer base is that is, is as you say, that sort of two hundred and fifty thousand pound mortgage, um, trying to figure out like you know the best way to to get to home ownership. So, I mean, in terms of the way you guys have scaled, it's been huge. You've taken on massive debt, as you say, in terms of one point five billion pounds worth to underwrite these mortgages. Now, in terms of how you scaled with individual staff and hiring the right people, obviously you'd gone from singing to writing music to working in a company which did scale to a thousand people and you saw that happen how did you put the right people in the right place at the right time to get to the point that you needed to with, with heavy tech it's it's probably the hardest puzzle to solve to be honest because the and and, and often can be quite painful because the people you need at the beginning are not necessarily the people you need at the middle and not necessarily the, the people you need at the end and, and that applies to me as well you know like uh, you have to really transform your sort of capabilities and proclivities as, as you go along. Um, but no, I, I very much believe in hiring for aptitude uh, rather than experience. So you just try and find, you know, intimidatingly brilliant people who you're excited about spending every day with. And that that's kind of even now how I approach it. Um, and particularly in that early days, I think that's vital. Like the whether they've spent 10 years here or five years there or what their CV looks like is, is almost irrelevant. It's whether they like have a fire in their belly and the kind of the intellectual capacity to to really do the work um, but then as you go along and I, I guess as some of the things that you're doing become less experimental less uncertain and now need to become repeatable and scalable um, that's when I really found the benefit of like of experience and bring in like people with sort of direct experience of you know running operations or building an engineering team to kind of allow you to to take it to that next level and sort of step back from your sort of uh, emotional attachment to the things that you had before and the processes you had before and the things maybe that you'd built. Um, and so now the team looks, it's, it's really quite diverse. So we still have, you know, people with us uh, from the day one, uh, but then we have, you know, some heavyweights coming in who, you know, been global head of mortgages at HSBC or something like that. And actually having them all together is like, is the most fun thing. A, like sometimes watching them sort of look askance at each other and try and figure out what the other one is talking about. But again, I think that's why culture is the most fundamentally important thing because the, you know, everybody's coming from radically different work experiences and backgrounds. So that if you don't have that kind of sort of fundamental common purpose and empathy with each other and desire to build like, it's not going to work. And do you hire, I mean, obviously back in the day, you used to specifically do the hiring yourself, I suppose, but now you've obviously got a team around you that do that. Now, what's the criteria that you hire on apart from necessarily aptitude? But is it is it grades? Do you look at grades? Because ironically, you'll have pretty crap ones, frankly. No, none. <laughs> no, we don't. So so we actually don't, uh, we don't take CVs um, and all of our, and our hiring processes are completely blind. So you basically, it's quite, it's a bit annoying to be frank if you're a candidate because you, you effectively have to fill out these kind of work samples and sort of explain how you would approach things. But we felt like it was the only way that we could manage all of the, the unconscious bias that sort of is, is unavoidable in these fast, you know, in, well, in all businesses. Um, so that's how we approach it. So no, we are completely disinterested in, in what you did and where you've been uh, and certainly what grades you got. 10 or 20 years ago um, and then it's and it's only once we've kind of got through that phase that we'll actually meet um, candidates and and really then I, I think it comes down to that same thing it's like are you excited about seeing each other every day and do we believe that you've got the skills to solve the problem in front of you what I'm really interested in by by yourself is that evidently you are an entrepreneur quite by definition but arguably you seem to have overcome quite a lot of mental hurdles I suppose because obviously you you haven't had any money for instance when you were touring but you didn't really care you had a good time but you got on with it and again you've taken out one and a half billion pounds worth of debt don't really care just kind of get on with it and again when you started you didn't take a salary for a year or so how do you because so many people A couldn't do that both because they haven't got the cash but B they just couldn't mentally stomach it you know people can't get past that barrier of not taking an income it's um, do you know what it's uh, just being totally transparent with you I didn't find it that hard um, at the time. Like I wasn't, I, ne I just never thought of myself as an anxious person and just, I kind of just gutted it out and I didn't really, I didn't really think that much about it. And, and that was always one of the narratives about me was like, oh yeah, Dan, he'll run through a wall. He's super hardcore, that guy. And actually it's only been, I think as I've got a bit older, I was 40 last week. I've got three kids under five and I think, I think oh, bad you, luck. Know, you, you were, you're telling me, you're telling me. <laughs> But it, I grew up a lot. Um, and actually, I think what I realized was that I actually was terribly anxious for a lot of the time back then. Um, and even though I wasn't, you know, necessarily sort of mentally processing it in a healthy way, like I was just gritting my teeth and, and going on. And, and actually, it's been 
that, that's been quite a, um, a revelation for me, and particularly now as I look at all the people I work with, um, making sure that I'm not like making sure that I am open and vulnerable about the fact that I find it hard and I get anxious and I get exhausted. You know, what we do is incredibly difficult. Um, I think has been has allowed a sort of a new level of kind of intimacy uh, for us as a business, um, and I'm 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 thrilled that I managed to find my way there. And I'm not sure I would have if I hadn't sort of had kids and grown up a bit. Because in terms of when the pandemic happened, it affected a lot of individuals, a lot of businesses. It affected you guys. You, you know, revenues went down seventy percent. I mean, as if you hadn't kind of had it. I suppose hard to start with by risking it all. You nearly lost it again. It was really awful. Um, it was really awful because it was. The multi- you know the multiplication of those two things was like one you know commercially we were horrified at what we were seeing in our numbers and on the other side we were just you know like suddenly you know i'm looking at all these people i used to see every day and now they're like just in little squares on zoom um and you can see pe- like people were te- you know we forget a bit now but at the time we people were terribly afraid 100 like afraid for their families afraid for their livelihoods you know we just didn't know what the future would hold and and i think it was a really big moment for us and i think um as we, you know, and we and we had to do some furloughing, um, and I think just being really, really direct about sort of our individual emotional states, um, and kind of having this sort of shared trauma in a way that I know we all had as a society, but within the community of Habito, obviously we had in in our own way, um, it really changed things. Like I think we went from being like maybe a slightly, um, you know, overconfident classical startup who's just doubling and doubling and doubling, um, to to sort of having a a notion of our own mortality um, and that like this was a precious thing that we that we were doing together and we shouldn't we shouldn't we shouldn't waste it and we shouldn't take it for granted and what decisions then dan did you make during the pandemic when you could see revenues diving massively how did you you know pivot how did you change how did you kind of just batten the hatches did you have to get rid of people yeah no we we went through so we had to furlough some people because obviously we didn't have any customers coming in so we had the you know there was no we couldn't keep paying the operational staff in that way um and then we also had to kill some product lines. Uh, so there was some new stuff that we were really excited about and we've been working on for a while. We just didn't have the capacity to, to keep focus on it. So we, what we really did was we, we sort of stopped. We tried to remove the, the sort of external factors, worry less about what was happening in the market and really, really focus on what we could do uh, in these sort of lulls in volume to improve the product um, or get further ahead on our home buying products or our lending products. So actually we ended up, you know, we'd been running at such breakneck speed for years that we did get this moment of kind of kind of an extraordinary moment of reflection actually on like perhaps that we were trying to do too many things at once um, and perhaps our sort of quality bar had started to drop um so we really focused on, on putting it back and making sure that you know we were like had our house in order so that when the market returned which it did just you know just a year later um we were ready for it um and that that i think i think again it was it was very painful but in retrospect i think was was extraordinarily helpful for the business In terms, I suppose, because there will be people listening to this that are at that very early stage, right? Either working for someone and wanting to jump ship, or wanting to start uh, their own business. What would you, what would you say to them in terms of the first, you know, month to six months they need to have in place to be able to go and raise some capital, but from someone like yourself? Yeah, I mean, so it varies, you know, depending on, on verticals. Obviously, in, in fintech, because it's so heavily regulated, it's very hard to have much to show apart from a, an idea. Um, Look, I think I think the key thing um, is to have yeah, like a really, really clear narrative about the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, and one of the things that unsells me is when people are trying to solve 50 things simultaneously, or they're pitching me two ideas at once like that. That's, those things are like a, a complete red flag for me. I always want to see like real, real focus um, and a sort of, and I really want to have the sense that they're going to be doing it whether I'm involved or not. <laughs> um, but I think, and, but I do think it can take different forms. Sometimes like, if you're a skilled orator, like just just explaining your, your passion for it is enough. Um, decks are normally the enemy in my experience, but sometimes they're, they're a decent way to allow you know, you know someone to sort of organize their thoughts and explain them to you. So sometimes they can work. Um, I see I've, nowadays I see a lot more long form notions. Um, people just writing a, a little a little book on the plan. Um, and again, so yeah, I, I think it is. 
to be honest, I think the medium is, is completely irrelevant. I think it just needs, it's the clarity of thought and determination that, that you, you need to express. And in terms of the, the scalability of it, irrespective of if you're investing in it or if you're starting a business full stop, because obviously you have to focus on the scalability, you have to focus on giving back to the team because they're not going to do it for free, I suppose. And you alluded earlier to the fact that you've got shares or team members in the business with shares. Now, are those shares that are gifted to staff members? Are they bought? How does that, how does that work structurally? Um, so no, they are. So everybody at Hamto is a shareholder. And um, so we are, I won't bore you all the detail, but because we're financial services can be a little bit tricky. Um, you don't always get all of the same um, sort of tax benefits around stock options. So we have to, we run an EMI program. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's really interesting. I think it's fundamentally important that everybody has some level of ownership in the business. I think it, I think it just changes the way we see each other um, and sort of, you know, prevents that kind of like, you know, he's he's going to become a gazillionaire, and I'm just going to be still like slaving away in the back office. And I think like nobody wants nobody wants that. So, I think they can be just this incredible tool for providing evidence of the fact that we really are a community and that we really are trying to do this for each other. Um, they are complex and not, and they can be. People can't. It's a it's a it's a really funny balance and something that I struggle with sometimes, which is they also are very likely to be worth nothing. Um, particularly in the early stages of business. And so I, I would feel quite uncomfortable, you know, being like, you're going to be a millionaire, like take a 50% pay cut. And so you have to strike this balance of being like, look, this is this is real potential for wealth creation. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make it happen with like, don't spend a penny of it. If you can't afford this to live on the salary, don't take this job. Like these are kind of long odds lottery tickets at heart. And I think, I think finding your way your comfort in, in making sure that you don't mislead people as to their, the, 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 the certainty of the value of it, whilst not sort of denigrating them so much that they seem worthless mm, <laughs> to, yeah. the, to the employee. There's a, there's a bit of a challenge there. It is. And in terms of the early days, then, I suppose, you obviously gave shares to the, I suppose, founding members of, of Habita. Now, in terms of what that looked like salary-wise, could you remember what you put them on financially, say the first five, ten employees? It was really variable, actually, and it still is. You know, we still some people come in at, at market because we can afford it. Um, other people are coming out of you know Goldman Sachs, and they're taking seventy five percent pay cuts, um, and you know, are, are looking to make it up with equity. So no, it was um, it was a real mix. I, I generally look. I think in, in a start in those very early days, you're so desperately trying to keep your costs under control because obviously that like that cash that you've got is is your oxygen, right? Like if you if you run out, it's over. Um, and so certainly, you know, there were people who had taken thirty or forty thousand pound pay cuts to to join the company. But also, if like if people are sweating how they're going to pay their mortgage, again, no pun intended. But you know, if if, if people are if people are so kind of worried about their financial lives, it makes it very hard for them to focus on solving the problem at hand. So I think I think even as as an employer, you also have to be responsible in like you can you can really attract them in with the promise of the shares and the excitement of startup life. But I think there's an onus on on you as the employer to make sure they can actually afford to do this job. Yeah, there's, there's a reality really in terms of not being able to cash them in just yet. But in terms of cashing in shares, so to speak, Dan, I mean, you've, you've de-risked your life quite significantly over the last couple of years. You're now an angel investor. You started with nothing. You've now got something. The day that you, I suppose, sold some of your chips off or, you know, cashed them in, what did that feel like? Because you then have liquid to, you know, buy a drum kit, as we can see in the video. That was my 40th birthday present. That's pretty cool. So, I love it. It's pretty cool, right? Yeah, I do like that. I used to drum. I used to drum. It's a bit of a midlife crisis. Yeah. <laughs> is it electric or is it proper? It's electric. It's electric. Yeah, it's, yeah. Oh, my wife said I wasn't allowed a real drum kit. Yeah, she's probably right, though, <laughs> isn't she? She's probably right. <laughs> um, how did it feel? Um, it felt great. I'll be completely honest. Like, it felt... Um, it felt amazing and at many many points along the road it felt incredibly improbable um you know liquidity is uh, like a very scarce resource uh, <laughs> in the, in this game um and i think being able to yeah I, th I think having some kind of tangible marker that all of the effort you'd put in was worth you know had, had added up to something that was really meaningful i would say though i do think it can get a little bit detached from reality and you know like you know the, the, the sort of the the absurdity of valuations and, and everything, you know, like the, the kind of the, not to be vulgar, but the sort of the pissing contest of my company's worth a billion, mine's worth three and a half billion. Like it's yeah, all, yeah, yeah. like, I, I think it, I, I think you have to be incredibly cautious about not letting that invade your consciousness because it's not reality and you don't need the money. And, and this is the, the thing that I've said for a long time and easy for me to say is that like my financial situation has so infinitely outstripped my expectations of even five or 10 years ago. 
Um, and not, not to say that I'm a, I'm a billionaire or anything, but um, that I think you just have to make like remember to like remember to be satisfied at some point and not like not just keep expanding your lifestyle and your ambitions and your need to keep up with everybody else and what they have um, and just re- remember what you would have been blown away by when you were 18. <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, do you do you have that element of affirmation where you do just step back and go, do you know, I've got enough now to, to carry on for the rest of my life and have a nice family life and whatever else, whatever's important to you individually and and not worry about going into work the next day and trying to drive it forwards? Or do you still are you still as driven by work? Because it's a, a bigger thing. It's not financial anymore. It's more making people's lives fundamentally better. Yeah, I just, and again, it's not because of any like moral substance on my part. Um, I just, and you can tell from the fact I left school and became a musician, like I've never, it's just never been that interesting to me beyond like the the freedom that it provides and it did it definitely changed a bit when i had kids and i was like oh shit like my my financial missteps now have implications for others um and i definitely became a little bit more like okay i need to like but you know and again i now i'm terrified that my kids are going to turn out to be tremendous assholes because like they live in a nice house in hackney <laughs> like, um but and then my wife is like well, what do you want to do we're we going to create some like dangerous mind scenario so they can grow up gritty and i'm like oh no i guess we're not going to do that so you know <laughs> <laughs> just make them camp in the garden every couple of days and don't feed them but no in terms of what peter jones does from dragon's den he's got a really interesting way of actually making sure that his kids don't grow up spoiled i suppose and what he does is he goes and says Right, go and work in the public sector, go and work in, you know, the NHS or something like that. And yes, I will double your salary, but actually go and get a good job that can make a difference. And I really like that as a kind of stance because there's no point in just sitting back on your laurels and hoping for daddy's money to come in. Go and make an actual difference. A hundred percent. And the other thing is, I look so to my, you know, my wife, wonderful woman, uh, you know, uh, love of my life, um, came from a completely different background to me. Like, you know, grew up in Wimbledon. Went to uh, went to Westminster. Went to Oxford as a as a lawyer, like been tr- tremendously successful. Um, and and it's really funny because you know if if you'd asked eighteen year old me, I like she kind of would have been the enemy. Like she kind of I'd have been like ugh, like silver spoon, etc. And um and I realised that in many ways, like I was just as bigoted as anyone else. Do you know what I mean? Like from my kind of like you know some more humble beginnings, I was just as resentful of of the people above me. And actually. Now, again, it sounds a little vulgar, but I'm more and more convinced that the distribution of assholes in the world is the same at every level of demography. <laughs> it's <laughs> an interesting perception, I suppose. I mean, it really is. I mean, every level will help, hates the other level, will they not? Because, because of whatever rebellion that they seem to be affiliated with, I suppose. So that's it. So I think you just have to, like, I think the second that you're, you're measuring against who's below or above you, you're screwed. Like, I think you just, you've got to figure out the life that you're willing to have. Like, and you know, like we, we often joke, like we could, we could move to, uh, you know the countryside and probably not work anymore um but that's not the life we want like we want to we want to be in a metropolis we want to be like driven and working on something we care very deeply about um but that means that we're going to be working for the next 50 years 100 percent. i mean but, but looking at the, the analogy that you're saying in terms of people above and below you i mean it's the same in business right in terms of you have competitors you have people that you're better than people that you're worse than at what point is it good just to not care about the competitors because it can somewhat tarnish where you are as an individual in your business journey yeah i mean again it's that whole kind of extrinsic and intrinsic motivation thing yeah i mean they um no i think it's incredibly dangerous and like and and either the, the sort of the arrogance that comes from pulling ahead or the insecurity that comes and then the sort of trying to copy what they're doing and, you know, launching that product because they launched that product. Like you really, and it, it's the same at every level of business. Like you just need to like really narrow the aperture of your focus, have total clarity on the problem you're solving and really try and shut out the world. Like, and and I mean, as much the, the, the naysayers and the applause, like it's all utterly meaningless and transitory because next year if you might be you know you you might not be the flavor of the month <laughs> or you might not be in the lead <laughs> and in terms i suppose then of what fundamental success looks like to you and we we know full well that it's not financial it just can't be but what does success look like to to daniel I think I want to run the mortgage industry. I thought you were going to say run the country then. I wasn't sure where it was going. (laughs) No, No, my background's way too sketchy. (laughs) Yeah, too much dirt, too much dirt. Didn't didn't go to Eden. Um, No, I I think I would, I have a crazy idea of how I think home buying should work in the UK. And it's, um, and and it's not just about us being, you know, the monopoly in it. It's, It's not that at all, but I really, I think that home ownership, and again, like, I, think, I think it's such a, a, an emotional and sort of 
economically important thing and if you're on the right side of it it's great and provides stability in a you know a, a place for you to build your future and if you're on the wrong side of it it's incredibly painful to be like trying to find your way into it um and i think i think like it's nuts to me even now but there we're kind of in a position maybe where we could fundamentally change it over the next five or ten years um and i i guess if we succeed in doing that and we make it's easier for people to buy homes, to live sustainably in them, to have the flexibility to access the capital in that home, to do whatever they need to do. Like I think, yeah, I think I'd be pretty proud of achieving that. And in terms of changing the market then over the next couple of years, you say five to 10 years, you know, if we were to hedge and forecast on, on what the mortgage world looks like or the home buying world looks like, what, what is that? I think there's a few things. I think at the moment, it's, um, it's an incredibly sort of splint, not to use jargon, it's a splintered value chain. So you've got like the, the estate agent with their set of incentives, the broker with their, the lender, the conveyance, the surveyor, and they're all sort of optimizing in their silos and generally being quite unhelpful to each other, which is why it's so painful as a consumer, because you're being sort of hand, handed along this chain of disinterested people, <laughs> um, all trying to kind of take their, their cut. So no, I, I think the real, the opportunity is in the integration of that chain. And so, you know, you only go through confirming your identity once and that carries all the way through and that you can do the searches on whether, you know, there's a protected tree in the back garden right at the beginning rather than right at the end. So you don't have to wait 90 days right at the end of the process. So I think an integrated digital spine for the home buying process um, that kind of brings all of the stakeholders into a single place and gives them clarity on what's happening and, and puts the, the customer experience at the forefront rather than the profit motives of all of the individual service providers. Um, that would be pretty cool and uh, I think it's, it's not an unrealistic ambition uh, for Habito or for the market. Well, no, I totally get it and I mean, I'm glad someone's doing it, frankly, because I'm going through a buy-to-less at the moment and it's a oh, massive, really? massive ball ache. And in terms of, <laughs> so it's just awful. <laughs> and in terms of kind of the legal side of things, you mentioned about the searches and the trees in the garden and such like, how do you do that legal part almost before you go through the purchasing part? Because somebody's time surely is being used up there or is that all tech? No, so we're now also a law firm. Exactly, so I know. Is it your yeah. wife helped there, I imagine? <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, it's the wrong kind of lawyer. Oh, is it? No, no. So, you, so there are. There's absolutely technology that helps. Although you're at the end of the day, you're, you're still interfacing with local councils and so on. So there are there are limits. And um, but that's what that's one of the the. The, the very the most simple points about it is by instead of running it serially by doing some of these things in parallel you can start to really bring down the overall time and we just we found by 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 having a, a single point of contact for the consumer all the way from how much can i borrow on the mortgage calculator to completing the transaction is just a like a radically a radically different proposition and and that and, and that's been by far one of the largest growth areas of our company over the last couple of years. Do you think you could predict if we're going to be buying houses on the blockchain or indeed through cryptocurrency? Because I know that in Amsterdam, they've sold a property recently with Bitcoin. Do you think that's in the future? I know a bunch of people working on it. Um, and I think, yeah, I could, I could absolutely see it. I mean, the, the funny thing about mortgages is that the quantum limit is just so large, right? Like the, the, there'll, there'll never be a consumer sort of instrument. Like the, so that blockchain is only really going to be relevant to whether this credit fund is selling it to this sovereign wealth fund or this bank is buying it. So it's, it's sort of in that, that institutional universe where I think the blockchain is interesting, but a little bit less relevant um, because there's not, you haven't got the issue of like diffuse consumer trust. Um, but I imagine just in terms of kind of streamlining the process and, and reducing the costs involved in, in buying and selling mortgage uh, securities, um, it's, it's probably inevitable. Obviously, I want a mortgage doing a buy to let. Where can I go? You should immediately go to Habito.com. <laughs> I should do just <laughs> that. that. <laughs> Let's stop talking right now. Um, so no, uh, we, uh, Habito.com, we do, we do deal with buy-to-let um, as well as uh, normal residential mortgages. Um, and I think, you know, and I'm not, not to do the pitch for Habito, the, the, the kind of the cool thing is it's free and we have all the mortgages. So there is absolutely no reason not to go and check it out. I'm going to do that, Daniel. I've got to shoot off to go and quickly get a mortgage from Habito. Thank you so much for coming <laughs> on, mate. <laughs> a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Join me next week, Wednesday at 8am on all podcast platforms where we'll be speaking to another leading entrepreneur. Show your support by subscribing as without you, this podcast wouldn't happen. Produced by Pinpoint Media and sponsored by Capsule Cover, this was a Success is in the Mind podcast. Take care.